As we look at the introduction to Mark's gospel, I'll take about 20 minutes here to work through the first eight verses. Now, you could do a whole lot with these verses. Uh, There's a lot here. Uh, So tonight what we're going to do is a bit more of a survey through these eight verses. Uh, The Gospel of Mark starts out, as I was saying this morning, as a fast-paced account of Christ. There is no birth recorded or childhood years. Jesus arrives on the scene as a fully grown man. Uh, But Mark does uh, pick up near the start of Christ's public ministry, and he, he does lay out some preliminaries. Uh, I would say the introduction takes the first 13 verses, Mark 1, 1 through verse 13. And in the preliminaries that Mark lays out, he divides it into three sections. He talks about the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He then, uh, in verses 9 through uh, 11, he talks about the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus. He gives two verses to the temptation of Jesus as well. But like uh, any good author, you know, many authors, if they are describing the origins of some significant event or movement, they will begin by going back and looking at the roots of that, mo- of that movement. In several books that I've read in my life where you're kind of reading through the book, you're trying to understand a concept or how something came to be in history, some Uh, war event or some theological movement, and the good authors can take you before it even began. They can take you back and they can begin explaining some of the events that occurred in anticipation of uh, that. And so Mark, as he's writing here, he will give us some preliminaries to the ministry of Christ. And he starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Let's look at Mark 1 and verse 1. Since the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And as we look at the first eight verses of this introduction, we're going to see what Mark labels in verse 1 as the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus. He actually describes the beginning of the gospel in three ways, according to the way I'd break this out. First, in verse 1, he tells us that the beginning of the gospel concerns Jesus. Um, so we just, we just read verse 1, but look at it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So from Mark's perspective, he's going to tell us how the good news about Jesus began in its public ministry capacity. Now, technically, the word gospel that's used here, that's a word that we use a lot, the word that we hear used a lot in Christian circles, was not a word that originated in Christian circles. This word actually... Uh, was a word that was used uh, both by pagans, by Greeks, and by Romans before the life of Jesus Christ. 
As a matter of fact, when this word was used secularly, it would just describe good words of hope and promise because of some significant event that occurred. An example of this would be something that William Lane describes in his commentary as he's describing the word gospel as it was used in Roman circles before the life of Christ. Lane said this, he said, Among the Romans, the word gospel meant joyful tidings and was often associated with the cult of the Roman emperor. He goes on to say, A calendar inscription from 9 B.C., found in Asia Minor, says of the emperor Octavian, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on his account. So this word that's used here for gospel is a word that was used of important historical events that promised to impact the world was used often even of the birth of Roman emperors. However, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, John Mark makes more significant claims than any other author did concerning the good news of any other person. John Mark first speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ and describes him as the very son of God. So he claims that he is God's son. Of course, the the phrase son of God, as I showed you this morning uh, in your handout, I gave you a little handout about this, and there was a chart. uh, John John Mark has seven different people talking about the son of God, describing Jesus as the son of God. He's got uh, himself, of course, here in Mark 1.1. He's got God the Father referring to Jesus as the son. He's got Jesus himself declaring that he's the son in chapter 3. He's got demons professing this. He's got Caiaphas declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, and he ends with a Roman centurion uh, declaring this as well. Uh, However, this claim to deity would be similar to what a Roman emperor might claim as well. Now, a Roman who'd be reading this would understand the claim. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. He's, He's God. He's the Son of God. However, I think what separates Mark's claims from all the other claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ, other than the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, was God, was that how Jesus not only impacts the temporal condition of those who inhabit the world, but that he also offers eternal salvation from sins. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ different than the gospel of any other person who have ever may have existed or any other person an author may have wrote of. If he's describing Octavian or so, some Roman ruler, he might claim that this good news, these joyful tidings impact the physical condition of the world and that the world will never be different because of this person, which is probably too much of a claim. But no one would claim that that their God, their, the, the person they're exalting, affects also the eternal spiritual condition of their people. So the beginning of the gospel concerns Jesus. Now, the second way I describe this is in verses 2 and 3. Second, Mark says that the beginning of the gospel fulfills many Old Testament texts. Again, look at verse 2. 
It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this quote, you could say a lot about this quote. Actually, there are whole books that are written just about these two verses. Uh, but I want to I really, I want to run past you this evening just three things about this quote. You notice, first of all, how it starts. John says that the quote comes from Isaiah the prophet. And that is true. That is true. This quote mainly comes from Isaiah. However, what you might not know, unless you actually go back to the Isaiah text, which we don't have the time to do tonight, is that John Mark weaves three different passages together to make this quote. He takes a section of Isaiah 40 and verse 3, and he adds to that Malachi 3 and verse 1, a part of Malachi 3 and verse 1, and another part of Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20. Okay, so there's going to be a quiz tomorrow. We'll all show up here, and you have to come back with those three texts. Okay. No, not, not really, but. Now, what, what Mark is doing here is he is, uh, he, he is weaving these texts together, and he has three prophetic voices announcing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 23 and verse 20, it's Moses. Moses is the author. And Moses announces that God will send a messenger before the Israelite people who will lead them into the promised land. He will lead them to the place that God has for them. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, another prophet by the name of Malachi records what God says about the arrival or his arrival to deliver the people. In Malachi 3, God himself will come to the temple and he will live with the people after the arrival of a messenger who prepares his way. Then, of course, that text in Isaiah chapter 40, a very famous text, where uh, Isaiah is predicting a time when the people will be deported away to Babylon. And he says, uh, when, when he's talking in this way, he also describes the fact that God will come and will deliver them. In Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 3, he describes how God will come and rescue the people after they've been deported away to Babylon. And in that text, he demands that a herald cry out to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. So what John Mark does here is fascinating. John Mark pulls together, together three voices, the voices of Moses, Isaiah, and Malachi, to introduce the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pulling these three voices together, I think, would indicate the significance of the moment for John Mark. And what he's showing is the birth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be fulfilling all of these texts. Now, another thing I'll say about the quote, you can say more about it, but I want you to note that these prophets do not announce, this quote does not announce Christ's arrival itself, but the arrival of a forerunner who is going to prepare the way of the Lord. And finally, we add to that, that in, in these Old Testament texts, we went back to, like, say, the Isaiah text. 
What Isaiah is, is describing is one who will cry out and a messenger who will prepare the way for Yahweh, God, who will uh, make a highway for God. Remember reading that in your Bible in Isaiah chapter 40? So Isaiah says that there needs to be this messenger who cries out and prepares a highway for the coming of Yahweh. However, what Mark does with this is he changes it just a bit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he has this messenger preparing the way, not for Yahweh, but for Jesus, which is actually a significant testimony to the fact that John Mark believed that Jesus was God. He's God. And so, as you read in the text, he says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark's talking about Jesus here. Make his paths straight. His would refer to Jesus as well. And so I think this says a lot about John Mark's view of Jesus. And so the beginnings of the gospel concern Jesus. The gospel fulfills these Old Testament texts, these three voices crying together. And then third, the beginning of the gospel involves John the Baptist in the wilderness, verses 4 through 8. Again, we don't have a lot of time here to work through these verses. But what we learn in verse 4 is that John the Baptist fulfills these important Old Testament prophecies about a messenger or a forerunner preparing the way for the Lord. John here, the Baptist, is a significant figure in his own right. I mean, as Mark's describing the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually most of this is about John the Baptist. However, John appears on the scene and then quickly fades away. I would use the analogy of like the appearing of a bright nova star. John appears brightly at the beginning, and then he disappears after verse 14 when he's arrested. But here at the beginning, he fulfills this very important part. John's role in preparing the way for Jesus in verse 4 includes two things. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing, and proclaiming. Okay, and so uh, for the rest of our five minutes here, I just want to talk about what John was doing when he was baptizing and what he was proclaiming. In in John's ministry, he called for an action that was wholly unique, something that the world had really never seen much of before. That is, he was claiming or calling for people in repentance to be baptized in the Jordan River. John was a very unique prophet, living out in the wilderness, away from the communities. But yet, he was calling them to do something that uh, scholars have a really hard time figuring out where he got this. I think he actually gets this from the Lord. I don't think there is anything that predates this. Um, Some scholars try to connect John's practice of baptism with like Jewish ceremonial washings or ritual bathings or things like that, or the washing of Gentile proselytes. But I want to suggest John the Baptist here is doing something that's entirely new. Those washings or ritual bathings that were occurring, those were done repeatedly in the temple and in the tabernacle and various places around Jerusalem and Judea. John's calling the Israelite people, to come out into the wilderness and to do something decisive one time. 
to be baptized through immersion. It's also different in that those bath, you know, the ritual baths would normally be something that would be self-imposed. Like you'd go in, you would do this on your own. They'd be self-administered. But here John is the agent of the baptism. Okay, and so John is baptizing in the wilderness, a new concept. Sometimes we just see baptism, we think, well, they'd be used to this. This is something new that would, would draw the attention of the people. Now, this is not Christian baptism, okay? This is not like what we do. Although what we do in baptizing someone after they get saved, I think, follows kind of the same, uh, you know, it has the same nature, full immersion in the water, but that'd be after salvation. What John is doing is he's calling for the Israelite people to come back into the wilderness and to be baptized as an indication that they were repentant. And that gets into the two things that John preached. We can do this quickly. John preaches in verses 4, middle of verse 4 through verse 8, two significant things. You can see the content of his preaching in verse, verses 4 and 5, and then again in verses 6 through 8. John the Baptist preaching first was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see that in verse 4? It says, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. What John was preaching here at the beginning is interesting because it involves three things. It involves baptism, repentance, and forgiveness. But it's kind of hard to figure out how those three things are related in what John was proclaiming, what he was preaching. Uh, how is baptism related to repentance and forgiveness? I think what he's basically saying here, what John, what John the Baptist was declaring was a repentance baptism. He was describing the nature of the baptism that he was declaring, that it would include repentance and confession of sins for the forgiveness of those sins. And so... John the Baptist here is calling Israel to come out into the wilderness to repent of their sin in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And the results of his preaching are pretty interesting, aren't they? Look in verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Very significant results from the preaching of John the Baptist. We just had a significant preacher die recently. And, um, you know, we, we won't get into the specifics of Billy Graham's message and, and everything that he proclaimed, but when you start, you know, reading the history books about where he preached and the significant amounts of people who heard his preaching and, and how many people were converted under the ministry of Billy Graham, I mean, that's a significant movement. Uh, for instance, in Australia alone, uh, when I was there, it was estimated by the, the people at the school that I was at that, um, that uh, he held a revival in Melbourne, Australia, that had approximately one quarter of the citizens of that city actually attend the meeting at some point or another in the, in the few weeks that he preached. A significant preacher, significant message, and God seemed to bless his preaching in many ways. Here in verse 5, John is declaring this message, this simple message of a repentance baptism for the forgiveness of sins, 
and all of Jerusalem and all of Judea, representatives from every quarter of the province around Jerusalem, and all of the quarters of Jerusalem were coming, and they were confessing their sins in preparation for the arrival of God. But John's preaching can also be seen in verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through 8, we see again mention of his proclaiming or his preaching. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So verse 6 describes kind of the uniqueness of John the Baptist. He was fulfilling some prophecies by wearing these things and eating these things. But what I want to draw your attention to is verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I think what John Mark is describing is the content of John the Baptist preaching. First, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, he was preaching the arrival of one greater than himself. That was the content of his preaching. Matter of fact, the first message, you need to repent, you need to be baptized for the, and, and repent for the forgiveness of sins, I think, with the second one, we're given the reason why they needed to do that. You need to do that because there's one stronger than I am who's coming. And John the Baptist describes it this way. This one who's coming is so much stronger than I am, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how much more significant he is than I. And then in verse 8, he gives uh, one of the reasons why Jesus is stronger. He's stronger because his baptism is not with water, like the baptism I'm performing, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which is, I think, a, a metaphor here describing some of the Old Testament prophecies that Israel would be expecting. They'd be expecting the outpouring of God's Spirit upon the land. And so as an Israelite would hear this, that there's coming one greater than I who's going to be baptizing. He's going to be pouring out the Spirit. They're going to see this as an indication that God is going to come and he's going to bring his Spirit and fulfill the promises given to them in several of the prophetic texts. And in this text, we learn not, not only that the Spirit will direct and empower Jesus, but also that Christ will have the ability to dispense or to give out the Spirit. I think verse 8 is a prediction of the fact that Jesus is going to come and he's going to give the Spirit of God out to believers in Jesus Christ. I think this would be fulfilled through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that would be given to those people who follow him. As we go through this text, there's all sorts of applications you can make, but The application I want to close with is this. It comes from John the Baptist's role and his spirit in proclaiming Jesus. I think uh, the application for us almost should be obvious. Remember in, in another gospel, you've got John saying, he must increase, I must decrease. 
Imagine a book which starts with you as the central figure. I mean, you're all over like the first three or four pages of the book, but then you disappear. And there's nothing about you for the rest of the book, maybe some 200 pages. How might you be tempted to respond to that? Well, you might grow frustrated. You might get angry or jealous. But as Jesus' disciples, John's mission is our mission as well. He performs a significant role in the beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But his role was to point to someone greater than himself. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must be content as well to make much of Christ and to live in the background or the shadows. Sadly, we we live in a world today where even many preachers appear intent on drawing and keeping attention on themselves versus on the Savior. And so as we go to the Lord's table this evening, may it be our heart to live our life like John the Baptist, who came, fulfilled his role, and by verse 14 of this text is arrested and no longer appears in the book.